1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 1. Furthermore, then we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus, that as ye have received of us how ye ought to walk and to please God, so ye would abound more and more. Father, in Jesus' name, please open our hearts and our minds to your word. Help us to comprehend what is the height, the breadth, the length, and the depth, the Lord God, of your meaning and of what you'd have for us in this text. Lord, your word is infinite, and we are finite. Please teach us. Help us to understand, Lord. Grow us in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name and for his sake, amen. Welcome back. To Bible time. Here in 1 Thessalonians 4, we're starting the fourth chapter out of five chapters in the book of Thessalonians. This is an incredible chapter. Um, by the time we get to the end of this chapter, we'll have the them which are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air in the text there. And the way the world is going, it could happen before then, before we even get there in our Bible time text. It could be that fast. Um, it could be much later. But God, Jesus said, you know not what day or what hour the Son of Man will return. Watch ye therefore and pray, lest ye enter into temptation. And that kind of ties in with the concept here of discipleship. Remember back here in verse 13 that it says that um, to the end, chapter 3, verse 13, to the end he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. This Jesus coming with all his saints was given as the end, the purpose of God's ordination of discipleship as the means by which believers are established and grow in the faith. And that coming of the Lord Jesus Christ is therefore what is going to be discussed once we get down to verse 13 in this chapter. We'll have 12 verses here of practical correspondence discipleship in a way. Now, I, I know I just kind of spoke down on that a little bit the other day, but there's a balance to everything. Um, here, the Apostle Paul is saying, Furthermore, then, we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus, that as ye have received of us how ye ought to walk and to please God, so you would abound more and more. So, in a way, the Apostle Paul is telling them to... In a, um, Basically, he's saying to them to take what he's already taught them and go and run with it and abound more and more. He's saying, I'm going to tell you some things here. I'm going to give you some practical discipleship here by correspondence. Um, and there's a place for that. Here, furthermore, then we beseech you, um, gives us, pulls in a extension of what we've already learned in the previous four verses. Having laid the groundwork for the need of discipleship in verse 10, night and day, praying exceedingly that we might see your face and might perfect that which is lacking in your faith. was, And that was part of the prayer after and the question, what thanks can we render? Here we are praying exceedingly night and day that we might see your face and what thanks can we render to God again for you? Um, and Paul's grateful praise and adoration for God, but at the same time his burden to disciple these dear brethren in the Lord who'd come to Christ through faith in the word of God that they had received as it was the word of God, not as the word of men. 
as it says back there in chapter 2 and verse 13. For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God which ye heard of us, ye received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. And now, and that verse, that one right there, chapter 2, verse 13, is very possibly the cornerstone verse of the whole book of First Thessalonians. It's really what made that church what it was. It's what um, set that church apart, and it's what sets all Christians apart. The degree that you believe God and obey God is the degree that you will walk with God and have effect for God. And here, discipleship is designed to help you to obey and keep the things that God has already said and to remind you of them. Look at chapter 4 and verse 1. For, for, furthermore, then we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus, that as ye have received of us, how ye ought to walk and to please God, so you would abound more and more. This, as ye have received, what did they receive? Back in verse 13 of chapter 2, ye received the word of God which ye heard of us. Ye received it not as the word of men, but as it is the in truth, the word of God. Discipleship, therefore, is building on what you already know, not adding to what you already know, but building by application, building by close study, building by meditation, building by consideration, building by comparing scripture with scripture, line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little, um, taking and expanding our understanding of that which has already been said by God. Discipleship was never given by God as something to teach you something new. Do you hear me today? People, a lady told me a couple days ago um, over at the store, I was there in the store with my wife and this lady was um, speaking to me and she said that she had never had her questions answered until she joined this certain group that had all these answers to the questions. The group that she joined was a, a group of heretic cultics who don't believe the Bible and their answers that they give for the Bible questions are made up answers. They are uh, metaphysical. Usually they spiritualize everything and they spiritualize things away. I confronted her. I said, your group doesn't believe in hell. And she said, um, no, we believe it's the grave. I said, what about Luke chapter 16? Jesus said the rich man died and in hell, he lift up his eyes being in torments and saw um, father Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he besought father Abraham that he would send Lazarus and touch water and touch the tip of his tongue. For as he said, I am tormented in this flame. And when I confronted her with that, she was a little chagrined. She shook for just a moment and then she quickly said, it's spiritual. And I had to tell her very quickly, who gave you the right to choose what is spiritual? What they basically did was they made something metaphysical, non-physical, beyond physical that God had not made beyond physical. They made something spiritual that God had not made spiritual. And so they came up with added information they added to the word of God where Jesus Christ did not say that hell was a spiritual place. Instead, Jesus Christ preached it as a physical place. This group has taken it upon themselves to add information and understanding to the Bible. And their answers, therefore, are added. 
adding to the word of God. And that is not discipleship. And that is unbiblical. There's no place for that in the word of God. The basis and the bedrock of all true biblical discipleship is the word of God. Again, chapter 2, verse 13. For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when ye received the word of God which ye heard of us, ye received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God. Now, God here, through Paul, is launching into a little bit of correspondence, discipleship. In in 1 Thessalonians 3.10, he says there, um, night and day praying exceedingly that we might see your face. In verse 11, he says, now God himself and our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way unto you. So his heart's desire is to be present with them, face to face, life to life. Discipleship, in its truest biblical sense, is life. Life on life, face to face. Christ is our great example in this. The master and the only master lived and ate and walked and worked and slept and prayed by and with his disciples. He had some times of seclusion, but by and large, he lived right there with his disciples. He would preach with his disciples and then they would ask him, Lord, what did that mean? And the Lord would tell them some, and he would tell them whether it was spiritual. He would tell them whether it was literal. He would tell them who it applied to. He would tell them sometimes um, who it did not apply to. And he would tell them what his own word meant. Jesus Christ, our great example. Go to Luke 5, 16. We'll run a couple of references here. Look at a couple Bible verses about Jesus Christ, how he discipled. Luke 5 and verse 16. And he withdrew himself into the wilderness and, and prayed. It doesn't tell us whether the disciples were with him in that instance or not. But it says he withdrew himself into the wilderness and prayed. Luke chapter 6. And verse 12, Jesus Christ emphasized prayer heavily, lived a life of prayer, lived a life of secluded prayer. Verse 12 here, and it came to pass in those days that he went out into a mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. Now here he is in this mountain praying to God all the night long. And in verse 13, it's going to show us that his disciples were not there. Verse 13, and when it was day, he called unto him his disciples and of them he chose 12 whom also he named apostles. Now they could have been somewhere there on the mountain, but he was by himself in that mountain and he continued in prayer there alone with God, alone without his disciples. You can be alone without being alone. A family can be alone. The Bible talks about the morning in the, as in the days of Hadad Ramon, um, whenever Jesus Christ comes back the second time and defeats his enemies. And it says every family will mourn itself apart. So a group can be alone. When Jesus talked about praying alone, he wasn't saying that you can never be with or around anybody else when you pray. I've heard people kind of um, put cast a dispersion on church prayer meetings because you're supposed to go in your closet and shut your door. But if you read all of scripture, that's absolutely ludicrous. Jesus often prayed alone with his disciples, often with James and John and Peter, often with all 12, often he would gather with many of them and they would be alone in a desert place or they'd be in the boat rowing or whatever it would be and Christ would would pray. 
So prayer being alone as in not standing up on TV in front of everybody to have a prayer meeting and showing off how spiritual you are, which is the context there of Matthew 6, but that's a rabbit that we are not going to try and chase down and kill today. And so here he says, and when it was day, he called unto him his disciples, and of them he chose twelve, whom also he made apostles. Go to Mark chapter 1 and verse 35. Mark chapter 1 and verse 35. And there, whenever he called those and he named them apostles, you find twelve apostles of the Lamb. One of them would fall from his bishopric. And be replaced later. Not getting into all that right now. Mark chapter 1 and verse 35. And in the morning, rising up a great while before day, speaking of Christ, you can read the context yourself, he went out and departed into a solitary place and there prayed. And Simon and they that were with him followed after him. So here they came to try and find him. When they found him, it says, and when they had found him, they said unto him, All men seek for thee. Now, why were all men seeking for Christ and nobody found him but his disciples. Isn't that interesting? You could preach a whole message right there just on that. The Bible says that Jesus taught my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. He said that in John 10, 27 and in John 10, 5 he says and a stranger's voice they will not know. All men were seeking for Christ but only his chosen disciples were able to find him. God which is the Father guided them. God the Holy Ghost Ghost guided them. God the Son drew them, and they were drawn to Christ there where he was, and they found him. And they said, All men seek for thee. Did it ever occur to them that they had found him and others hadn't? I wonder. Did they think that they just had better deductive reasoning or did they think they just had a better gut instinct and so they were better people? Often we get that way. When God is teaching us, when God is discipling us, when God is leading us, and this is the essence of true biblical discipleship, Christ as the master, we as the disciples following Christ. And as we're following Christ and he's teaching us, very often we will get a big head because we learned something other people didn't learn. We'll see something other other people didn't see and we fail to recognize that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost, the triune Godhead, these three are one, the God alone, God himself has drawn and called and led us to the place that we are at and it is by his workmanship that we are what we are and it is by his teaching, his leading, and his discipling that we are able to find him. I find a lot of comfort in that text. I've often wondered as I've read it, um, especially as a young man, a young teenager, I would think, how did his disciples keep up with him? There were mobs thronging him. Sometimes it was the middle of the night. They had no cell phones. They had no emails. They didn't have any, um, m- uh, any apps or smartphones with location tracking devices. They didn't have anything like that. And somehow Jesus never lost one of his disciples. Do you realize that? And it wasn't because they were so bright. A lot of them were just fishermen. A lot of them had probably never even really gone outside of their village except to travel down to Jerusalem for the sacrifices and come back up on the same road every year. And here Jesus was wandering through the hills. He was wandering through the valleys. He was going through the he was going through the towns. He was going through the villages. He was going through the big cities. He was going through gates thronged by multitudes, harangued by Pharisees, and attacked, if you will, by 
devils who couldn't attack him and always found themselves worshiping at his feet every time they ran towards him. You know, I don't think one of those devils ran to him with the intention of worshiping him. I really don't. But when they got to Jesus Christ, all they could do was fall on their knees. When that gathering demoniac came out of the tombs that no man could bind, I have to wonder if Satan thought we've got him now. This is a place of darkness. This is a place of spiritual night. And I have here a man with a legion of devils. And the Bible says that man ran to Jesus. And I happen to just think, and this might just be my opinion, that it was the intent of the devils and of Satan himself to try and end the earthly life of Jesus Christ right then and right there. But he came running up to Jesus and stopped and answered all of Jesus's questions. And time after time, the demoniacs would run up to Christ and stop and fall on their knees and worship Jesus Christ because he is God in the flesh and they could do nothing against him. But in the midst of all of this craziness, <coughs> water please, you. thank you. In the midst of all this craziness, in the midst of all this upheaval, in the midst of all the turmoil, in the midst of the multitude thronging him, in the midst of getting sent on little errands, sometimes getting sent for food, sometimes being sent to give to the poor, sometimes being sent to catch a fish like Simon Peter, all these different tasks, all these little things that they did. In the midst of all of this, they never lost track of Christ. They were always where they needed to be, and Christ was always where he needed to be. Let's look at another text here, if I can find it, if I put it in here. Go to Matthew fourteen twenty-three, and let's find a time that the disciples were sent out in a ship here, and things started to get really ugly. The sky got dark and the wind blew harder and the storm whipped up on the Sea of Galilee. Matthew 14 and verse 23, it says um, in verse 22, And straightway Jesus constrained his disciples to get into a ship and to go before him unto the other side. Well, he sent the multitudes away. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up into a mountain apart to pray. And when the even evening was come, he was there alone. But the ship was now in the midst of the sea, tossed with waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went unto them, walking on the sea. So when the disciples couldn't get to Jesus, Jesus would always get to the disciples. And this is really the key and the foundation for biblical discipleship. God has got to do it. And if you are his disciple and following him, you will always be able to get to him or he will be able to get to you. And sometimes whenever you're in your storm and you're in your boat that God puts you in on the sea, God puts you in facing the wind that God sent to blow and the waves that God sent to dash against your vessel. And you think that all hope is lost. You think that it's a waste of time. You think that you can't get through to God. You can't get out of the boat. You're just trying to do what God told you to do. Jesus knows where you're at. Jesus is praying for you and Jesus will come to you in the time that you truly need him. The Bible says, and in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went unto them walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled saying, it is a spirit. And they cried out for fear, but 
straightway Jesus spake unto them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it be thou, bid me come unto thee on the water. And he said, Come. And when Peter was come down out of the ship, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. There Peter walked on the water. It seemed like their circumstances were keeping them from Jesus. It seemed like it was impossible to get to Jesus. It looked like Jesus was nowhere around. And when he finally showed up, he showed up in such a way that it caused them to be afraid. And they couldn't hardly believed their eyes and they didn't know whether they could trust their senses and they called out to the Lord he told them not to be afraid and Peter said if it be thou bid me to come unto thee on the water Jesus said come and now Peter was walking on the water Jesus is the great shepherd Jesus is the master Jesus is the one that we follow as disciples not men you say you just preached how bad we need men yeah I did and now I'm preaching how bad we we need Jesus, how much more we need Jesus than men, because you've got to balance this thing. And your eyes have got to be on Jesus. You've got to get your focus on Christ. You cannot have your focus on men. Otherwise, you'll wind up like the Corinthian church. I am of Paul. I am of Apollos. And you'll have divisions and strifes amongst you as you become followers of men instead of God. Now we know Jesus became, or I mean Peter, I'm sorry. Peter became fearful and became afraid and began to falter. And he cried out to Christ as he began to sink, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately in verse 31 Jesus stretched forth his hand and caught him and said unto him O thou of little faith wherefore didst thou doubt Jesus did not let Peter sink Jesus is the master Peter is the disciple Jesus is the shepherd Peter the sheep Jesus the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep Jesus the good shepherd will not suffer one of his sheep to be lost hallelujah Makes me want to go to John chapter 10 and look at that. Let's just do that real quick. Lord being our helper and having permission from the Lord to go there. So here Jesus says to them in verse 7 of John 10, I am the door of the sheep. All that ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. So you'll note that there are other people that come into your life to try and disciple you. There will be other men that come and try and teach you. When I was a young, when I was a teenager, there was a man in our church um, that was... <coughs> I wanted to uh, be an encouragement and a blessing to him. I also wanted to learn from older men. Um, that was something that was instilled in me at a young age. I had a great respect for older men. And this particular older man, I asked uh, my dad if perhaps we might be able to correspond. And then dad said that sounded like a great idea. So uh, I talked to that older man and we started corresponding. And we would write letters back and forth. And... <coughs> And as we did that, it very quickly became apparent that this man had embraced many false doctrines and was trying to teach me those false doctrines. I took the letters to my dad and showed him, and dad said, yeah, you don't need any more of that, and we cut that thing off. And that was a grief. It was sorry that we had to do that. But he was not a man that I could follow. He was not a man that could disciple me or be a mentor to me because he did not stick with the Bible. There will be many that come. Look at verse 11. I am the good 
good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. But he that is an hireling and not the shepherd whose own the sheep are not, seeth the wolf coming and leaveth the sheep and fleeth. And the wolf catcheth them and scattereth the sheep. The hireling fleeth because he is an hireling and careth not for the sheep. I am the good shepherd and know my sheep and am known of mine. As the Father knoweth me, even so know I the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. There's the deity of Christ again. Is God omniscient? Does he know everything? Does anybody else know everything? Here Jesus Christ says that he knows the Father as the Father knows him. Did you hear that? He's saying he knows God as much as God knows him. How well did God know him? You could say, well, perfectly. Yes, that's exactly right. But God not only knew him perfectly, he knew God perfectly. And the Father, he says, as the Father knoweth me, even even so know I the Father. We're going to move on from here. Christ as the great shepherd, the master who first called his disciples to come after him, is our great example. Christ is still our master, and all true biblical discipleship must be done with Christ as the head, exalted and lifted up over all that is said and done, obeyed in every command and word of Scripture. That's a tall order. It goes back to what Christ said. Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. So therefore, correspondence should be used only as a supplement. Online resources only as a help. To lean entirely on such resources will render the babe in Christ weak, stunted, and unrealistic. I'll give you an example real quick. Many years ago, um, some weird and sick-minded people decided to take a bunch of babies that were born and raise them with robots instead of mothers. And they put them in a room with robots that would feed them and robots that would turn them and robots that would clean them. And they basically robotic arms that were controlled by and large by operators outside of the room looking in and they observed them and they studied them and they fed them the exact same food that another group of babies was being fed by their mothers who were being changed by their mothers and taken care of by their mothers. They had the same temperature in the room. They had the same beds in the rooms. They had the same materials for their diapers, the same cleaning materials to bathe them. They, everything was the same except that they lacked the direct touch of their mothers. And the babies that lacked the direct touch of their mothers were stunted and they were weak and they were sickly and had much more struggles with growth than the other babies. Now, it shouldn't have taken a scientific experiment to prove that. And it's pretty sick that they thought that they were God and could play God with little babies like that. That's actually one of the biggest reasons America has become the, the wicked cesspool that it has become, because America thought that America, through science, could be as God. We became our own gods, and we began to worship science and think that if we can dream it, we can can achieve it. If you can think it, you can do it. And we began to um, transgress all kinds of barriers and boundaries that God has placed through the laws of nature and nature's God. But in any case, that's another rabbit to chase. The robotics nursery failed. And your robotics nursery will fail. Your online internet resources, your YouTube, your Bible time podcast, your um, 
all your big big names on the radio. You can have all of those things, but they will fail. This epistle, as it turns out, was designed, inspired, preserved, and elevated by God from a mere letter to become holy scripture. And as Paul was even writing the words, he was writing the words as he was moved by the Holy Spirit of God. And therefore, this epistle is of absolute importance. Do not misapply the truth that I'm teaching you to make you think that you would need a physical discipler more than you would need the word of God. Nothing could be further from the truth. All biblical discipleship must have the Bible as its material. But in gaining the benefits God has designed for discipleship to produce in you, you need godly ministers and godly examples in your life. That means if you don't have those, you need to move or pray it in. You either need to go where you can get the help you need, or you need to pray and seek God with strong praying, crying and tears, crying out to God and tears, and fasting as much as you can, as much as God allows you to, for God to raise up a biblical church in your area where you can get the help that you need give you an example of a man. This man was um, spent all his nights in the bars. This man was far from God. Just listened to his testimony not too long ago when we were running cows out um, in Tennessee with Brother Michael. And this man was far from God, but he um, got saved. He trusted Christ as his Savior. He was a he was dancing in the bars every night doing what they call break dancing, which is solo dancing where you just dance all over the place all by yourself. And they jump up and down and back and forth and they spin on their heads and do backflips and all kinds of crazy stuff. And that was what he was doing, that kind of stuff. And he was doing it in the bars every night. He said he would work all day, he would get off work and he would go to the bars and he would be there until they closed early in the morning at 2 or 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning. He'd go catch a few hours hours of sleep and get back to work at his job so that he could go back and dance, dance, dance the night away in the loud, blaring, banging rock and roll music of the bars. What a life. Not a life. But he got saved, bless the Lord, bless God, bless his holy name, and he began to grow in the Lord, And but he wasn't really getting quite as fed as he, as he needed, and he was still going to the bars. And then along came a preacher that um, came to the church to help the uh, main pastor, I think it was an assistant pastor that came to the church, and he began to meet with some of the young couples and do Bible studies with them, and through that influence, he began to grow in the Lord. Lord. Shortly after that, um, he began to desire to know more about God. And the church said, let's send you to a Bible school. You can get a degree in the word of God and come back and be a minister because they recognized that this man had a lot of zeal for the Lord. And in the meantime, he had quit his bar dancing. He'd quit all that stuff. He started following Jesus. He recognized the incongruency and he went down to a college. And he got down there to the college, and the professors were correcting the Bible. The professors were telling him that the Bible could, wasn't really written right, and that they knew better than God did. And he got upset with that, and he kept calling home and saying, what, what should I do about this? And they would tell him, well, spit out the bad and, and try and take the good. And he finally got to where he couldn't take it anymore. And he left that school, and in the process of all of this, he heard about another school down in Florida, and he said, I need 
need to go there. That's the place that I need to go. And he, it cost him. When they moved, listen to me, this is why I'm telling you this story. When they moved, I'm not sure, maybe it was Arkansas that they moved to the first time. When they moved to the first school that they went to, the whole church was behind it. They got sent down there with a U-Haul truck full of furniture. They had people help them move down there, and they got down there and they got settled. When they left that place... There was nobody to help them. Their church, their home church still backed them up. They said, if this is what you know God wants you to do, then you do what God wants you to do. And what a blessing that was. But it cost them. In order to pay tuition and things like that, They, which their church was helping them with that, but, and he was also working a job, uh, making a very, very low rate of money that the church there that had the school also had a business, which is kind of weird. The church had a business that the church owned for school, the people that were in the school could work at the business to earn money for tuition. And he was working there at the church business, and he said he was making very, very, very little money. So after he left the school, they had to stay there for another month trying to pay off what he still owed, and then they left for Florida, but they sold their furniture to finish paying for everything and to pay for what they needed to get to Florida. And he said when they showed up at Florida, they had a couple bags in the car and it was him and his wife. There was no U-Haul truck. There was no group of people to help them move. There weren't a bunch of people to welcome them. And they showed up at the church that had the school that he believed God was sending him to. And they walked in the door and they met the pastor inside. And he said, and the pastor said something like, wow, you two look like you just got out of a war zone. And he said he told the pastor, we did. And they got a house, a little rental place, a cheap little place, and he got a job, and he worked his tail off, and he went to that school at that church where they believed in the Bible. And they believed that the Bible was the Word of God. This is what I'm talking about. This is God's will for you. You can say, well, that man could have grown in Christ. He had zeal. He had desire. He could have been what God wanted him to be if he'd have stayed home at his original church. But I say unto you, he could not. Because God's way is to use men, human agency. And when that man went to this, the first school, he was getting the wrong kind of discipleship. And it cost him to leave and go to a school where they believed in the word of God. <clears throat> Furthermore, it cost him a degree. One of the reasons his church wanted him to go to the first school is because it was accredited. So he would be able to get an actual degree. And the Bible school he ended up going to couldn't give him any kind of degree. All they could give him was hard, hard work. That's it. Long hours of study and men who loved God to walk alongside him. And he let, and there at that church, he began to thrive. And that church was evangelistic. They carried the gospel to the streets. And that man said something to the effect of, this is it. This is what a church is supposed to be. He got on fire for God. He got out on the streets and he's been street preaching ever since and in the ministry ever since. And he's been useful in the kingdom of God because he was discipled. He went from from being a babe in Christ who had faith in Christ and was willing to stand for Christ and was willing for his relationship with Christ to cost him earthly goods to being a soldier of the cross and carrying the gospel of Jesus Christ forward and he did it through the biblical means of discipleship but it cost him and if he had been following men he would not have been at the right school. 
He was following Christ, but following Christ cost him, and it brought him to the place where he got no recognition, he got no degree, he had um, no help. Now that church back home, they were still very gracious to him and helped him through it. But in any case, um, it was this man's willingness to move to get to where he could get the fellowship and the growth and the teaching and the mentoring that he needed that was the deciding factor and whether or not he became a soldier in the army of God. Now, you can say what you want. Every, everybody in the military thinks that their branch is the best branch, okay? You talk to somebody from the Navy, it's the best. You talk to somebody from the Marines, it's the best. You talk to somebody from the Army, it's the best. But there are different branches that do better at different things. <coughs> to be a soldier in God's army, you need to be in a church that is going to teach you the Bible and how to rightly divide the word of truth, how to understand the Bible using the Bible, how to obey the Bible and is going to live it in front of you so that you have someone whose faith you can follow as they follow Christ. Now, all we are brethren, we're going to get to that in just a second, but God uses people. Our online ministries, resources, like, like Bible time, are supplements. But you can't live on vitamins. If you don't get some milk and some meat, your vitamins aren't going to get you there. <coughs> you need the milk of the word and you need the meat of rightly divided, properly expounded scripture. You need bodily, physical men and women who are godly, holy examples in your life. Warning, warning, if you start following men, this can be sensualized. And pretty soon, you'll have a woman seeking discipleship from a man, and it can turn into a wicked situation and fornication and grief and reproach. God has ways and he has authority structures. So warning, there's a warning bell, watch out. If your focus is on man instead of Christ, then you can sensualize this truth and end up with improper relationships that bring reproach to the name of Christ. Some other supplements that I'll mention here are biographies again warning because whenever you read a biography of a man who God mightily used you're going to get the good and you're going to get sometimes the bad <coughs> and sometimes you're going to get the ugly sometimes there's going to be somebody that writes the biography and they'll write a biography of a very godly spiritual person and they'll write it from a very carnal sensual perspective because they are a very carnal sensual person and a lot of times the beliefs and the understanding of the author the spirituality of the author will com will color the biographies the best biographer I've ever read after is Geraldine Taylor for the exact and express reason that she had a clear understanding of the power of the Holy Spirit of God in the lives of the people she was writing about and also Howard Taylor who helped her write as well. They wrote Hudson Taylor's Spiritual Secret together if I remember right and some other books together and then Harold, um, Geraldine Taylor who is Mrs. Howard Taylor wrote some other books so I recommend her highly. Um, read books of great godly men but watch out they all made mistakes. Um, Christian resources, men's manuals, seminars can be useful, but they are supplements like vitamins. Confer conferences and camp meetings can be supplements, but you cannot live on vitamins.
you've got to have more than vitamins. So here we are in our text, 1 Thessalonians 4.1. Furthermore, then we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus, that as ye have received of us, how ye ought to walk and to please God, so ye would abound more and more. So this furthermore, then we beseech you, is addressed again here to brethren. To brethren. Go to Matthew 23. Now, this has been emphasized all throughout 1 Thessalonians. In 1 Thessalonians um, chapter 1, he calls them brethren beloved. Brethren beloved. And he uses no fancy title. Paul didn't even call himself an apostle in the introduction of the letter to the church of Thessalonica. Here in Matthew 23 and verse 8, Jesus says, But be not ye called rabbi, for one is your master, even Christ, and all ye are brethren. I love I love, there's some people I love and I enjoy their ministries that use the name doctor in front of their name. I will not, if I can help it and remember it, call them doctor for this reason right here. And I wish they wouldn't use it. It's really not appropriate. It's not biblical to add flattering titles to your name that give you some kind of preeminence above the brethren. The Apostle Paul, again, did not even use the word apostle here. Look at the start of 1 Thessalonians. You can hold your place there in Matthew. But back in 1 Thessalonians in chapter 1, he says, Paul, not Dr. Paul, not Paul D.D., 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 not Paul any letters after his name. It was Paul, just Paul. By the way, if I remember right, Paul means little. Do you hear me? And Paul's the biggest Bible character in the New Testament next to Christ. There is no other single man who did more for the church than, than Paul next to Jesus Christ. Peter opened the doors there at Pentecost and then at Cornelius's house. But Peter fades out about Acts chapter, shortly after Acts chapter 10. And Paul moves in and Paul's there through the rest of the New Testament. And it's Paul's epistles that that Peter himself says are somewhat can be hard to understand which unstable men rest as they do other scriptures. And Peter called Paul's writings scriptures. Paul is one of the greatest characters in the whole Bible and yet he opened the epistle to the Thessalonican church as Paul. Not Dr. Paul, not Rabbi Paul, Paul. He said, Jesus says here, but be not ye called rabbi, for one is your master, even Christ, and all ye are brethren. Neither be ye called masters, for one is your master, even Christ. But he that is greatest among you shall be your servant, and whosoever shall exalt himself shall be abased, and he that shall humble, humble himself shall be exalted. I cracked up when I met a man in Virginia, um, and he had a little different way of doing this because so many people in that area of the South get doctorates of divinity, and everybody's Dr. So-and-so and Dr. So-and-so. This man, I cracked up, he called them all doctor. That's one way of handling it. You gotta be, he's at least consistent in it. And I'd meet him and he'd say, Dr. Burks. And he'd say it just like that. And I'd just kind of have to laugh at him. Nothing could be further from what it is. And he called everybody that. Any preacher he met, he'd say, Dr. So-and-so. Dr. So-and-so. It was just kind of a funny thing that I noticed there. It's kind of a different way to handle it. I prefer just to use names. Just use somebody's names. Mr. is a term of 
Well, I'll let you learn all about Mr. in school. But basically, it means you are a man and an adult and able to make decisions for yourself. And that's about the end of it. But you don't even necessarily need that. I'm just plain old Joshua Burks, the son of Ronnie Burks. That's all I am. There are no big shots in Christ's church, only a big God. In 1 Thessalonians 2.14, he uses brethren again. This is the fifth mention of the word brethren in this little epistle to the Thessalonians. The first was brethren beloved in direct context with no comparison to himself as anything other than a brother. The second was 2.14, brethren, ye brethren became followers, but it wasn't followers of men, followers rather on the road as As he says, the church at Jerusalem has suffered this way, and now you are suffering like they suffered. You're on the right road. You are in the pilgrim's progress. You are on the straight and narrow. You became followers of them, as we have also historically become followers of the Jews and of these early churches as we follow Christ and suffer for his sake. Verse 17 of chapter 2, We, brethren, being taken from you, and here's love and affection and a desire to be together that's expressed in the word brethren. Verse 7 of chapter 3, brethren, we were comforted over you in all our affliction. So there's a high value placed on the brethren. Paul did not say, brethren, we comfort you in all your affliction by our existence and by the big titles that we have and by the fact that you have a plaque on the back of your church wall that says, founded by the great and illustrious apostle Paul in such and such year at such and such date. No, he said, brethren, we were comforted over you in all our affliction and he gave them honor and he gave them love and he gave them reverence now in verse one he says furthermore then we beseech you brethren and exhort you by the lord jesus so in the midst of all of this um, exposition here about discipleship here in verse four the practical discipleship the face-to-face discipleship is unavailable and the apostle paul is beginning to enter into some instruction for the church via a letter or through an epistle so that he can tell them some things that they need to know. And he says, furthermore, then we beseech you, brethren, here was no pretension. Here was no high sounding titles. Here are no, no ideas of flattering titles, but rather Paul calling the very people that he is teaching, the very people he is mentoring, the very people he is bringing up in the faith, brethren, Furthermore, then, we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you. Now, that beseeching and exhorting there is very important as well. The beseeching means to plead with earnestly, to plead with one earnestly. So he's saying, we beseech you. He was not saying, I rule over you. He was not saying, you better listen up. Sometimes I do that to my kids, and sometimes I do it in a wrong way. Sometimes I get down over them. I'm your daddy. You better listen to me. But you don't find that with the Apostle Paul. You find that with with him, even with those who could be considered his children in the faith, that he is treating them as brethren, as equals before Almighty God and he resorts to beseeching them, to plead with them earnestly. That takes some humility. That takes some low esteem of self and high esteem of the brethren to think them worthy of being pled with when he could have commanded them as an apostle. Now you can contrast this to a place in Corinth, in the Corinthian church where Paul warned them and Paul said, listen, I'm about out of pleading. 
He says, what would you? Should I come unto you with the rod? <coughs> Boy, that's rough. And there was a church that was full of all the gifts. It was a church full of prophecy and a full of prophets. A church with Apollos, the greatest um, known orator in the Bible to have ever preached the word of God in the scriptures, mentioned by the scriptures. He was called um, he was called mighty in the scriptures. For all of, of Corinth's good points, they wouldn't listen to Paul's beseeching and exhortations, so he had to get tough with them and command them. And you find him introducing himself and defend, as apostle and defending his apostolic authority to the church at Corinth, which is, a, which is something to note. Pay attention to that. How did, he, how did he entreat Corinth? How did he entreat Thessalonica and why? Now here he says, beseech and exhort. To beseech is to plead earnest, earnestly to exhort is to encourage strongly with with instruction so if someone is trying to climb a hill and they have a pack on their back and one man walks up and beseeches them, he stands beside the man or in front of him, he gets down lower than that man's eyes and he looks into his eyes and he says, please, please push a little further. I know you can make it to the top of the hill. Please do it. Please, for the sake of the unit, for the sake of the goal, for the sake of what we're trying to do, please persevere a little bit further. But to exhort is to come along behind and beside the man and say, move along there. Come on, push a little harder. Get to the top. Get another foot in front of the other foot. You're not too tired. Step up there. Let's go. We can do this. Come on, let's go to the top. That exhortation is to encourage with instruction. He says, we beseech you and we exhort you. In the epistle of Peter, chapter 5, Peter exhorts the elders which are among you. I exhort, he says, who am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being in samples to the flock and when the chief shepherd shall appear ye shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away and then he speaks of submission and goes on from there likewise ye younger submit yourselves unto the elder yea all of you be subject one to another and be clothed with humility for God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time and here we find Paul, in a sense, submitting himself to these who he's teaching, while at the same time they are submitting to him. And he's coming to them willingly, not for filthy lucre, but willingly and of a ready mind. He says here, we comfort you, or he says, we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus. And we've already touched on Jesus Christ as the great shepherd. He is the head over all things to the church, the source of all church authority, and the only source of true biblical discipleship. So he says, we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus, that as ye have received of us how ye ought to walk and to please God, so ye would abound more and more. And this is what we noted 
noted earlier in a previous lesson that this abounding more and more, this increasing in verse 12 of chapter 3, that, where he says, the Lord make you to increase and abound in love one toward another and toward all men, even as we do toward you. And now in chapter 4, verse 1, he says, so you would abound more and more. This is the purpose of discipleship. This is the, um, that God would do now get all tangled up there. The purpose of discipleship being your establishment in verse 13. But this is the fruit of discipleship. We, we mentioned the produce of discipleship. He's, he's saying strive to abound in what you've been taught. And as we looked even in this lesson at verse 13 of chapter 2, for this cause also thank we God without ceasing because when you received the word of God which ye heard of us, you received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God which effectually worked also in you that believe. So here he's exhorting them to take the word of God that they have already received, adhere to it, hold to it, stick to it, study it, abound more and more. Lord willing, we'll get into some of the practical issues that the Apostle Paul then speaks to, to the Thessalonican church in the next verses. And it will, it's worth noting, here's a church on fire. Why would Paul, by inspiration of the Holy Ghost, have to tell them to abstain from fornication? And we'll get into that. I'll give you a little hint here. When you have been on a mountaintop of victory because you've overcome persecution, you've overcome t um, temptation, you've overcome the enemy, and God has done a mighty work in your life, watch out. Because the devil's coming right around the corner and he wants to steal the fruit from you and destroy your good reputation. And if you think you stand, take heed lest you fall, which is why we need discipleship to establish us, to establish our hearts unblameable in holiness before God. Father, in Jesus' holy name, please establish our hearts. Please help us to lay hold on these truths and to live them, to follow you, to obey you. Lord, strengthen us, establish us, settle us. Lord, in Jesus' name, and for Christ's sake, amen.